right, so tonight I need to shift apparently to stage left or stage right. Hello out there. No, no, no. Everyone's going to hear. Welcome to those who are joining us online. Uh, it's, uh, it's great to be able to share tonight. I know it's a little bit of a, a funny one, really, because um, we're like, hey, it's Christmas. What are we doing? Go back into 1 Peter. Well, we had to do a little, little bit of a shift, and, um, and we didn't want to leave you in the lurch, particularly for those who have been following this series each week as we've been going step-by-step uh, step through the book of 1 Peter. We needed it to resolve. We needed it to resolve. Um, I was chatting with Megs a little bit earlier today. We were talking about a sermon series, and particularly as you work through various books of the Bible, it shouldn't actually surprise us that there's kind of characteristics of letters and themes of letters that kind of come over and over again. Like that ought to be uh, something that we're somewhat familiar with. And the truth is that 1 Peter is no exception. And we're going to kind of engage in something that we've been talking about for a while uh, once again tonight. Um, this whole series has been based upon this, this letter, this pastoral, uh, mature letter, right? It's navigating topics of suffering and authority and influence and perseverance. Again, this was a letter written to real people in a real place at a real time by a real person called Peter. And we might know him as the kind of the crazy out there disciple kind of putting his best foot forward sometimes well and sometimes not so well. But by this time he has matured as a church leader and he is speaking to people who have suffered people who are hurting, people who are situated there in Asia Minor and not quite sure what life would look like under these authorities that did not always look godly and under the kind of persecution that comes from being rejected by the Jews and and a lot of the the Gentiles alike. And so this is one more thing that we navigate uh, tonight. Now, also through the series, we've been speaking about this, and one of the challenges actually for us is the fact that it can be, because of that reason, it can be hard to identify with the hearers or the first hearers of this letter. We live as Christians in relative freedom. Um, while we might not always get what we want, we have a lot of, a lot of freedom to, to gather together, to worship together, a lot of freedoms that many other places in the world don't have. Occasionally we might receive a harsh word about being a Christian or be called X, Y, Z, or maybe the church gets judged for some reason or another. But for the most part, it's harder to identify with this kind of suffering that was every day. Uh, that would have been so difficult to endure. But at the same time, there are particular moments in our lives where maybe we feel a bit like foreigners, a little bit like we don't belong, a bit, a bit of times when we, those times when we choose to operate a different way to the way of the world. But one thing that this letter does continually speak to is our temptation to focus on connecting our lived experience with the character of God. Right? So maybe we can't actually experience the kind of the persecution that the original heroes were under, but it does challenge us over and over again to not just connect our lived experience with the character of God, where the quality of our life, right, where the quality of our life becomes a metric for God's goodness. Because this is something as any Christian you can slip into, where you look and you assess your life and you go, depending upon the quality of my life, I'm going to decide how good God is. If I'm going through suffering, then maybe in some way, maybe even subtly, we slip into this state where maybe God isn't as good as he says he is. When all things are fine and when all things are flourishing, we're like, yeah, God is good. 
But when we're suffering and hurting or where there's relational breakdown or maybe there's a lack of resource, suddenly we ask the question, is God really good? And and I've got to be honest, sometimes even within Christian circles, you hear this type of theology perpetuated. I mean, they don't usually talk about the suffering side, but usually when things are going good, they're all for that, right? And this is something this letter challenges us with over and over again. So we're going to read uh, here 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 14. This is the concluding words of this letter. Um, And so let's read them together. We're going to be going over these first few verses a few times just to kind of unpack what's going on here. Verse 8, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of suffering. So again, we have this kind of framing around this concept of suffering, but the thing that the the writer Peter definitely wants to focus on here in these final words is this idea is there is an enemy. The enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And that can feel a little bit intimidating, depending upon what your idea or concept of the devil is. And we've been maybe raised in different traditions, and, and maybe we've kind of got different understandings potentially of the devil, but nevertheless, Peter identifies, just as Jesus did, that there is an enemy, there is an adversary, that can be translated adversary the same way, and is described as the devil. Now, this word devil in the Greek is diabolos, and it basically means the false accuser, the false accuser. That is what the devil, the enemy is. Sometimes we're like, it's not this little guy with a pitchfork and like little horns and like, yeah, just hanging out in hell and then coming up to visit on occasion. When we're talking about the devil and as Peter understands it and as Jesus understands it, we're talking about the the diabolus, the false accuser, the deceiver, or even put more simply, the liar. That is what the devil is. The devil is a liar. I mean, think for a moment to the temptation of Jesus, right? So Jesus is in the desert and he's in this place that is vulnerable, which we'll come to a little bit later. And what does the enemy do? He comes and he makes promises. If you turn this stone into bread, if you worship me, I'll give you the kingdoms. Now, sometimes even as Christians, we're like, whoa, does he have the authority to like, you know, bargain on the whole kingdom? It's like, who cares? He's a liar, right? He's a liar. It doesn't matter what the devil actually says because his primary tool of operation is to deceive. And I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's worth us being, I suppose, aware of how the enemy functions because I've seen this actually misunderstood in in a couple of two really distinct deceptions that I think that the enemy actually tries to get over us as Christians, maybe as people who are a little bit more aware of the spiritual dynamic and the adversary than others. So there's kind of two kind of deceptions that I think Christians can potentially come to. The first one is that the devil has loads of power. And I know this could be a little bit controversial, right? But sometimes we're deceived into thinking that the devil actually has far more power than he has. And of course, this is a great tactic for a liar, right? This is exactly what the liar wants you to believe, that he has more power. Now, I'm not saying he has no power, don't hear me wrong, but sometimes we can be so fearful because the enemy has so much power to change my circumstances and change my health and change like change it's like wait a second let's just remember that first and foremost the enemy is a liar right and sometimes one of the one of the ways that he can cripple christians is by convincing us he has more power than he does and i just 
I think it's funny this image of the roaring lion because I, I think I haven't met a lion personally. I probably don't really want to. But uh, but that sense of like whenever I look at lions on like National Geographic, they're mostly sleeping. I, I feel like nearly like 90% of the footage I've seen are of lions sleeping. It's like you're the king of the jungle, but 90% of the time you're asleep. And and like there's this sense in which I kind of feel like it can be a little bit deceptive that way. It's like I kind of lift up my head and I kind of like roar and just remind everyone that I'm here and then I'll kind of like, yeah, like there's this almost this sense of like, yes, the predator is dangerous, but more than that, it wants to ensure that you know it's there, right? Even if it's sleeping half the time. So that can be a little bit of one of the deceptions that Christians can fall into. Now, of course, at the other end of the spectrum, some Christians are just like, it doesn't exist, right? So you can kind of hear the two extremes there. One is like, oh, he's got so much power. Um, and the other extreme is that he doesn't exist. And of course, uh, the, the usual sus- uh, suspects, the crime movie from 1995, that famous line, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Sometimes people think that's from the Bible. It's not. It's from a movie. But it's one of the things that we can also succumb to. And we can become the kind of spiritually naive to the fact that there is an enemy. He is looking to deceive us. And we are susceptible because, after all, Jesus was tempted too. Okay? And so we have to find this balance in the middle of our awareness of faith and life and spirituality where we don't want to credit the devil with too much power, right? Lest we succumb to fear. But we also don't want to deny his existence altogether. Otherwise, we end up with this really vulnerable naivety. And this is, I think, what Peter kind of wants to highlight a little bit in this final warning. So we avoid these extremes and we find the truth of who the enemy is somewhere in the middle, which Peter will encourage these Christians and would encourage us today to do as well. There is an opposition We do need to anticipate evil, but we will not be ruled by it. Let's continue here. It says, resist him. Resist the deceiver, who is not too powerful, but also does exist, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of suffering. And so Peter says, stand firm. Resist him. Resist him. And so what exactly are we resisting? Are we resisting this kind of like this this character of evil? Are we resisting deception? Well, yes, maybe. But there's a sense in which the image that Peter is conveying is that there's this kind of tasty meal for a lion that's kind of roaming about. What is the thing that we need to ensure that we are protected from? And it actually comes back from the previous verses in verse 6 and 7, which I'm going to go back to. The previous verses focus that Megan spoke about a few weeks ago Say this, 1 Peter 5, 6-7, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. So Peter here is actually making it very clear that the devil will use anxiety against us. Now, I want to be clear that I'm aware that that word anxiety, particularly in a modern context, is a really loaded word, Okay. We have people in our church who suffer from severe anxiety, sometimes a result of trauma, and I don't want to dismiss the significance of that, all right? So we've got to be clear on what we're talking about here. But what Peter is talking about here specifically in regard to that anxiety are the worries that emerge by being part of a broken world. It's like I look around, I see brokenness around me. I look around, I see brokenness in myself, and suddenly I'm anxious as to whether God is in fact good. 
I'm anxious as to whether God actually has a plan and purpose for me. Being reminded that, again, the challenge that is contained within 1 Peter is to focus on or, or to challenge us not to focus on connecting our lived experience with the character of God. We're suddenly like the quality of our life, the, the suffering, the level of suffering that I'm experiencing reflects upon the character of God. He's like, be, be wary of this. Don't fall into that kind of pattern. I love these words here in verse chapter 7. Cast all your anxiety on him because what? He cares for you. He cares for you. Peter regularly brings us back to the way you understand the character of God in the midst of suffering matters. And if we continually to fall into the trap of my life is bad, therefore God is bad, which we can also come to at times, then we're simply going to be vulnerable. We're going to be anxious rather than casting our anxieties on a loving God who is for us. And so there's this pattern throughout the letter. It's almost kind of like the meta theme throughout 1 Peter, that he identifies all the way through these people who are experiencing suffering in some kind. And that's going to lead potentially to a form of anxiety. And then if we stay in that space and we're not able to cast that anxiety upon the God for he cares for us, that's going to lead to a place of deep vulnerability. And I'm not talking about the good vulnerability of like sharing a heart, heart with someone. I'm talking about the vulnerability where the lion will eat you, yeah? That kind of vulnerability. Where is the wounded gazelle, right? We don't want to become the wounded gazelle that falls behind that the lion is roaming around ready to devour. And, and I look at this little diagram here, and I must admit, it's kind of a little bit depressing, right? <laughs> because usually what we want, particularly as Christians, but generally just in life, is to kind of like, yeah, I want to get rid of anxiety. Let's like circle that back to like hope. Or let's circle that back to peace and contentment. Like, and I'm not saying that isn't possible. I'm just saying that it's not in 1 Peter. <laughs> in 1 Peter, in terms of our lived experience, actually he's saying, don't get caught into this uh, into this realm of, of, of anxiety and vulnerability, instead circle back to suffering. Circle back to that experience of suffering again. And it's kind of confronting, particularly for those of us who, who want to feel comfortable as Christians. But the reality was that for whom Peter was speaking to at the time, he wasn't trying to promise them comfort. In fact, he would say the opposite that you're going to keep suffering in this temporary life. You're going to be foreigners and you're going to be treated differently. There is promise, there is hope. I'm not trying to be depressing here. But the thing that Peter highlights over and over again is if these people are going to enter into the kind of life that looks like one which follows Christ, it isn't actually going to be all that comfortable. I just want to be honest about what God is actually promising in this temporary life, and that is... Oh, it's this one here. The promise of eternal glory does not remove or even reduce the possibility of suffering in this life. And that's kind of depressing. All right? It's a little bit depressing. But that's what Peter wants to highlight. It's something we need to accept, particularly as temporary residents in this world. He does talk about eternal glory for sure. Notice this in verse 9, continuing on. Resist him, standing in firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering, so you're not alone. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, I like that phrase, 
will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So Peter, talking to these people, is not promising that things are going to go easy in this life. In fact, what he's encouraging them to do is for this little while, right, after you've suffered a little while, representing this life, that there is eternal promise that God has prepared for us. In the meantime, know that you are not alone. There's a family of believers who are undergoing these kind of sufferings too. But more importantly even than that, is know that we are stepping into, even today, the promise that God will restore us and make us strong, firm, and steadfast. And so... It's a little sad, but sometimes this is our life. And, and, and I'm, I must admit, like, I don't like preaching this. I'd rather preach happy stuff, but, but I sit with enough people. I sit with enough people in my role, and I'm sure you do too from time to time, if not all the time, where you know that there's always going to be a wound within a person's life. And God can bring healing and freedom, and I pray he does, and I hope he does, and often he does to some extent. But that doesn't mean that the suffering didn't happen and it doesn't mean there's still not going to be a wound there that is carried, that is poked from time to time. And, and I can't sit with someone honestly knowing that our God is good and he is good and tell them it's always going to be okay and that they will overcome this, that God will heal them from this. I can't promise that because that's not what God promises. And it's especially highlighted here in this letter. It's not a source of despair. We do our part in trying to bring healing and hope in this life. But this life is only temporary. The promise of eternal glory is endless. And the reason that we suffer is because we can't control other people's behavior. You can only control yourself, right? And this is what's so powerful about, I believe, the Christian community, right? And which is why Peter reiterated that throughout the letter, the Christian community is called to do good. So in this temporary life, we're going to experience suffering, still do good. Because to follow Jesus means to choose sacrifice, selflessness toward others. And when we are selfless and sacrificial toward others, others, it is inherently less destructive and suffering producing than selfishness. Like there's always going to be suffering in this life because there's going to be people who choose selfishness, right? And selfishness turns into forms of violence and people suffer as a result. But Christian community, and we don't always get it right, but when we do it well, right, we seek to bring healing and sacrificial love that combats that suffering. But what does it look like to be a community who forgives well to combat suffering? To be generous to combat the suffering of impoverishment? To show hospitality to the suffering of isolation? Peter's like, you can't avoid the suffering. There's always going to be people who choose themselves. But you, in the midst of your suffering, for this little time, I want you to choose to love. I mean, what if this temporary life isn't fair? 
the idea that this temporary life isn't fair is unacceptable for those who believe that this life is all that there is. It's like, that's not fair. But for those with hope, who know that there is a good God with life to come, we can endure. We can persevere. We can love deeply. But we need to adopt an eternal perspective. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. Again, Peter, eternal glory, suffering a little while. I hate to say it, these are, he's framing this around eternity. He's not framing this around the present. Okay? And we need to adopt an eternal perspective on this matter. The good news is, is we are not alone. I was chatting with um, a Christian from the Anglican Church just the other week. They're working their way through the book of Hebrews and Topher, who was preaching, I think, a Sunday week ago or maybe even this Sunday, he was looking at through a Hebrews chapter 11, um, which is this list of the heroes of the faith, right? You've got these big names of the faith. You've got people like Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham. You know, some big dogs, you know, people who they look up and go, yeah, they're pretty good, yep. Uh, no, these guys are revered, right? These guys are revered. And yet, here are the words from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 and 16. All these people, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, these heroes, were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive things, the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Isn't that poetic with this series, right? Foreigners and strangers on earth. Verse 16, instead they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God. What a weird phrase to put in a passage. It's like God doesn't feel bad about this. He's okay. His character is still good. Even though these heroes of the faith didn't get the promises that they wanted in this life, God is still good. He's not ashamed that that has been their experience because he has prepared a city. He has prepared something better for them. We are not alone. If you're experiencing suffering, whether that be something that is somewhat temporary, whether it is something that you have to sustain throughout your entire life, you are not alone. Again, Peter says, don't get caught up in the anxiety and the worries of the world. Don't become vulnerable as a result of that anxiety. Circle back to suffering. Just suffer for a little while. Wouldn't that be grand? And yet there is some things that we can do. And so I want to just kind of turn this a little bit to application. And I want us to note these words that Peter uses not once, not twice, but three times through his letter, his short letter. How can we break this pattern where we don't fall into this pattern of anxiety and then vulnerability? He says this in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. And then the passage tonight, 1 Peter 5, 8, be alert and of sober mind 
Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. These words, alert and sober mind, over and over again. It's almost like Peter wants to communicate something to these people in the midst of their suffering. And I love these words. In the Greek, nepho gregorio. You don't need to memorize that, but I just love saying it. Be of sober mind and on the alert. Nepho gregorio. And, uh, and these two concepts, being alert and of sober mind, I actually think are really applicable to us in those times when we do feel like foreigners and when we do feel like we are suffering and we don't want to get caught in that loop of anxiety that leads toward vulnerability. After all, the deceiver wants to take advantage of that. And so let's think for a moment about these two ideas with one more illustration. Recently I've been playing squash. This is not me. Uh, this is who I'd rather be, except I don't think I could ever pull off that bandana in my life. But nevertheless, squash. Now, for those of you who don't know what squash is, basically you uh, lock yourself in a box and hit a ball around. Um, but it's a good time. Most Saturdays I get to play squash uh, with Jared, and we are equally adequate. But one of the things that I have learnt about squash playing against an opposition player, uh, particularly on their serve, is the importance of being alert and of sober mind. All right? These two things. You see, what happens is if I don't, uh, if I'm not alert, right, I get caught wrong-footed. Sometimes uh, what will happen is I will be a bit lazy going back to my box and square to which I'm contained before Jared serves it. And if I'm not alert, usually I'm kind of just like minding my own business, kind of like checking my grip on my racket and just kind of being a little bit ignorant. He will serve it and of course I'll get caught up and I'll be on the wrong foot. I'll have no power. I have no idea where the ball goes and it will just be a grand old mess. But there's something else that can happen if I'm alert, but I'm not sober-minded. Sometimes I will stand there in my box ready to receive the serve. I am so ready, I've already decided what shot I will play. Usually this is after he scored a few points against me and I think I will hit it hard and to the corner. Regardless of what comes at me, it will be going down, right? And the ball inevitably comes and I'm ready for it, but it comes in a place that I am not prepared to make a wise decision about, but doesn't matter because I'm not sober-minded and I swat at that thing and, of course, it goes nowhere near where I want it to go. Because I was alert, but I was not prepared to actually have wisdom when it came to understanding where the ball was at. And this is why it's so important to have both our alertness and our sober-mindedness work in tandem. You see, to be alert allows us to anticipate, right? And anticipation is important. When we anticipate, it allows us to absorb a punch a little bit better, right? Because we know it's coming. And it's so important to be able to anticipate suffering. Sometimes we know that we're going to be working with someone who is maybe toxic and destructive and if we can't actually separate ourselves or create a, a safe boundary from that person, there's going to be some suffering coming our way. Maybe it is that we're going to enter into an environment we know there's going to require significant sacrifice, whether it be financial or time, and there's a kind of suffering in that, a suffering God wants for us, but it's a suffering nonetheless. And, and if we're not alert and, and that takes us by surprise, it can become a bit of a gut punch. It can make us anxious, and if we allow that anxiety to take root, we become vulnerable to the enemy who wants to deceive us. Sometimes we feel like God is calling us to sacrifice. 
But if we don't actually anticipate and have an awareness or an alertness, when that sacrifice actually comes at a cost, we start to question God's call. I sat with people in that space too. So to be alert allows us to anticipate, but to be sober-minded creates space for wisdom. <laughs> All right? Sober-minded means that when the enemy comes or when the suffering comes, I can actually make a wise decision around how I'm going to respond. It's not just going to be instinct. I'm not just going to say, I'm going to do this. But actually, I can assess that suffering with a sober mind. Treat it for what it is rather than what it isn't. And then take a wise step forward to maybe cast it on God or to pray about it to pray even for my enemy. And I wonder which of these two characteristics, alertness or sober-mindedness, you naturally kind of go, yeah, yeah, I've got that, but maybe I struggle with the other. Maybe as someone who's like super alert, you're like, I'm aware of suffering, I'm aware of the enemy, I don't want to get caught up. But then you kind of react it when it actually comes your way. Or maybe you're a little bit ignorant. Maybe you fall into that pattern of the enemy doesn't exist, right? <laughs> And you're kind of wandering around, not anticipating that there might be evil. Peter wants to highlight over and over both. Be alert and a sober mind. Be deliberate about your life. There's an enemy and he wants to take you down unless you can avoid entering into that vulnerable space that flows from anxiety left unaddressed. He concludes the letter this way. I have written and sent this short letter to you with the help of Silas, whom I commend to you as a faithful brother. My purpose in writing is to encourage you and to assure you that what you are experiencing is truly part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. My purpose in writing to you is to encourage you and assure you, I'm deliberately repeating this, I'm not just repeating, deliberately encourage you and assure you that what you are experiencing, the suffering you are experiencing, the rejection you are experiencing right now, the I'm under an authority, I do not like experience that you are having right now is truly a part of God's grace for you. Stand firm in this grace. Your sister church here in Babylon, most likely Rome, symbolic for Rome, sends you greetings and so does my son Mark. Greet each other with a kiss of love. Peace be with all of you who are in Christ. Peter, all the way through, doesn't pull punches. He doesn't make promises about this temporary life and what it looks like to experience life as a foreigner in this world. God's promise. Yes, to, to, to be a, a Christian, I honestly believe there is a blessing in the present. And relationship with God, there is nothing like it. But from that relationship comes a deep assurance and a reminder that the suffering experience in this world is only temporary. But the eternal glory that God has promised us is there waiting. So what will you do with your suffering? There might be times where you need to be a bit more alert. Maybe you need to put in a few boundaries. That's okay. Maybe it is a matter of being a bit more sober-minded and not being so reactive to those times of tension. Maybe 
questioning the character of God. But suffering will always be a part of our life while we live in this broken world. And so we need to learn how to navigate it as Christians. And my hope is that as followers of Jesus, we can set an example to this world. That when suffering is experienced, rather than just bunkering down and storing up stuff for ourselves, making excuses, throwing bitterness toward others, we can do as Peter instructs these people, to forgive, to submit, to love and do good as a holy nation set apart by God to be an example of who he is. For our God, as we're reminded by even communion earlier tonight, was a God who suffered too. But he didn't stay there. And that's the promise we cling to as well. Let me pray. Jesus, I want to pray especially, Lord, for those who right now are wrestling with an element of suffering within their life. And God, I don't know all those stories, but you do. God, I, I just want us, Lord, to be reminded, God, that your gospel is good news. But it's not always the good news that we expect. It's not always the good news that we want within our human understanding and this earthly economy that says a good life is the one blessed by God. For we know it's not always that way. In fact, the life that we have, we want to accept as God's grace for us. That in the midst of our wounds, we could utilize those experiences to bring healing and restoration to others. Lord, that we could be blessed to be a blessing. We don't want to be vulnerable. We don't want to be the target of the enemy. And so, Jesus, we cast our anxieties upon you for you care for us. And we return to that place of trust and hope and ushering in your kingdom that will be fully revealed in time that we might experience a life that is truly life for eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing one final song, and this song is The Blessing. It's a beautiful song, a beautiful song to not only speak over ourselves, but to speak over others. It's a reminder that God is a good God, that his favor right, is something that we want to experience ourselves, but we actually want for the world to experience, that we even want our enemies to experience. Again, we can't control the behavior of others, but when God interrupts a life, transforms people's selfishness into selflessness, maybe, just maybe, we can reduce the kind of suffering <laughs> that would otherwise be present. So let's stand and let's sing that now.